Turn with me again, if you would, to that Psalm, the 16th Psalm, on page 549, if you're using the Pew Bibles. Thank you to Mike for leading us this evening, and thank you to the musicians as well for their hard work in leading us in God's praise. As we continue in our worship, in preaching, because preaching is part of our worship, let us come to this wonderful portion of Scripture, and let us ask for the Lord's help, that we might understand it and apply it in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to hear your word, we recognize the great privilege that it is that you would speak to us. And we recognize that your word, when it is preached faithfully, when it is listened to attentively, that there is fruitfulness as the seed of the word finds the good soil. And Father, we simply want to pray that our hearts might be that kind of soil tonight. We pray, Lord, through your word, we might trust in you more. Increase our confidence tonight. And if we don't know you, bring us to faith in you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Don Carson. He is within Christian circles a fairly well-known conference speaker and also a well-known academic and scholar. Unsurprisingly, therefore, he's written many books over the years. And what I would recommend to you, he penned in 1990. The book carried a very searching title. The title was, How Long, O Lord? The subtitle told us the scope of the book that it was basically reflections on suffering and evil from a biblical perspective. Part of his reasoning for writing this book was that he believed it essential to think through such issues before the evil day comes, before the day of trial comes. He pointed out aptly that it's bad enough to experience the suffering itself Never mind the additional anguish of all those questions. Why, God? Where are you in all of this? Strikingly, theory turned to practice very quickly. Whilst he was writing the book, Dr. Carson contracted a condition called sarcoidosis. And he nearly died from the illness. Following his recovery over the next two years, he then learned that his wife had contracted cancer. And on two occasions, his wife nearly died during that time. His wife, uh, after the event, said that maybe next time Don was writing a book, he should consider writing it on a theme like joy or something like that, since the Lord was applying the theme of his book. But in a recent interview, there's something very interesting that he said. He claimed that having been prepared for the struggle, having thought through the issues of his confidence in God beforehand, as he came to the trial, he never doubted God. It was a painful time, but he trusted in the Lord. And you know, it seems to me that this psalm, the 16th psalm, is very much similarly a preemptive strike on doubt that comes in the difficulties that we face in life. Here is David. You notice that he's not in the middle of an instant crisis. It's not the flavor of it. Because in verse 1, he does not pray, 
save me, O God. As he does in other Psalms when he's surrounded by his enemies. Instead, he prays, keep me safe, O God. Preserve me, Lord, as you are already doing. And in this time of his security, David is not complacent, but he is preparing himself for the day when trial and difficulty will come. You can see this on the one hand in that he is making his request to God in prayer. Keep me safe, he asks, for ongoing physical and spiritual protection. But not only is he making his request to the Lord. You notice too that he is not only praying, but he is also actively taking refuge in God. He adds, for in you I take refuge. And I think that's really the key to the whole psalm, that we understand the rest of the verses as unfolding how David does take refuge in the Lord in very practical ways. Perhaps some of you, like me, enjoy the Lord of the Rings films, the trilogy of movies that came out. I really enjoyed the second and third ones particularly because it had all the fighting scenes in it. Maybe that's just my masculine situation. But in the, uh, the second of them, if you remember, there was a, an incredible battle scene with this fantastic fortress called Helm's Deep. Absolutely ginormous walls. And there's this battle scene that goes on for absolutely ages before they even get to the fight as the warriors of the enemy army are slowly moving, marching towards this fortress. And just imagine for a moment that one of the soldiers decided that he was going to stand out all alone in the middle of the battlefield and just wait there for the enemy millions to come upon him. He could, I suppose, shout out to his king, King, protect me! King, save me. And yet he would be a fool, would he not, if he did not run within the fortress that the king had built for his protection. See, this is David's point here. He's not only crying out to God, keep me safe, but he is actively running within the fortress of the Lord's protection. And therefore tonight, I'd like us to consider very practically the way that David seeks assurance and security spiritually and physically. The exhortation, the sermon title is simply this, take refuge in God. Take refuge in God. Now, I want to suggest to you that there are at least seven ways in which David does this in this psalm. And I will be fairly brief on each point. Don't worry too much. So first of all, we take refuge in God as we consider God's supremacy. As we confirm the supremacy of God, David begins to unpack in verse 2 how he takes refuge in God. As he says in verse 1, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. David is affirming not only that God is the king of the whole universe, but that he is the king of his own heart and his own life. It carries a particular force when you consider who David was. Why, he was a king himself. In these days, he was probably the most powerful man in the whole of the Middle East. He had an army which was greatly feared. He had subjects who loved him and who revered and obeyed him. You might think that he was beyond human authority. And yet here he is saying 
I have a Lord too. I have a king who rules over my life. The story is told of an American president who was apparently a Christian. And he seemed to recognize that a man in his position could be liable to pride and arrogance. And therefore, it was said that before going to bed on a clear evening, he would go for a walk outside. And he would look up into the cloudless sky and see the stars. With some knowledge of astronomy, he would remind himself of the vast distances between the stars. And he would remember that while he had made a few laws while in government, God had made the laws of nature. And that while he governed but a country, God governed the universe. And he said that after that, I felt the right stature to go to bed. See, we must recognize God's supremacy. And that takes humility on our part. Whether we are a president or not, the threat is still the same. Human pride. That Adam and Eve desire to be Lord of our lives. And the challenge day by day, even as Christians, is to acknowledge God's preeminence. And if you don't do this in the good times, then how much more difficult will it be in the difficult times? Now, I'm going to suggest a few books tonight for further reading because we don't have time to unpack the points in great length. Great book I've been reading in this recently is by a guy called C.G. Mahaney. The book is called Humility. And it's all about recognizing God's right to rule in our lives, his supremacy. Second, we take refuge in God as we cherish God's people. Something I read the other day in a news report, rising early on a Sunday morning for the church service will no longer be necessary. The church service will uh, launch on the virtual Church of Fools, opening its doors on the 11th of May. The cyber church permits worshippers to join the congregation via their computers. Every facet of a pastor's role will be replicated. They'll welcome members of the congregation, preach from a pulpit, and lead the prayers. It also added that pious PC users perched on pews, this is on the, on the website, can also interact with fellow attendees by conversing with each other singing hymns, or even praying together. I have to say, though, I don't wish to decry anything. I was a bit shocked when I read that. seems to say much about the times in which we live, where so often people want church programs, but we don't want the people of the church, at least not in close proximity, down a phone line maybe. What a contrast is David in this verse. David takes refuge in the Lord precisely because he delights in the people of God. Verse 3, As for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all mighty light. He not only wants to interact with them, he's waxing lyrical about them. Calls them saints. He calls them glorious ones. And you see, he views them through that humble lens that sees them as God sees them. A people whom God is changing into his own likeness. Remember an echo of this in the New Testament. Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthian church. Why, here was a rebellious rabble, if ever you saw one. And yet Paul addressed them like this. To the church of God in Corinth. To those 
sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. What a remarkable high view of God's people. I wonder, is your view a low view? What place do the people of God have in your affections? Do we delight in God's people or do we merely endure them? Keep them at arm's distance. See, it's no coincidence that in the book of Hebrews, which was written to Jewish Christians who were thinking of falling back into Judaism, it's no coincidence that in that letter, one of the ways the author says for the church to persevere is to meet together. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. So take refuge in God by cherishing the people of God and meeting with them. I suppose the flip side to that is the third point. Consider God's deserters. Verse 4, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. And therefore David takes a sensible stand if you think about it. In that case, he says, I will not pour out their libations of blood or take up their names on my lips. Why would you? If by our observation, the general trend of those who reject God and run after other gods with a small g is sorrow, then why would we pursue that route? And it's something we see even in our times, isn't it? Of course, the gods look a little different. But we see people almost self-destructively in their vigorous pursuits of gods of fame and celebrity and money and success. The very things which our society assumes would make them happy if they only had them are the very things that make movie stars and pop idols miserable. Most uh, young people here at least will have heard of Kurt Cobain, uh, one of the Uh, most famous dead icons. By the age of 24, he had achieved fame and fortune with his band Nirvana. But in 1994, aged only 25, he shot himself. And one biographer made this telling statement about him. It must have been galling to have achieved his ambition and realized it still wasn't enough. He could be ecstatic and experience The brief illusion of happiness. What could be never knew was contentment. And as David looked around the world at those people who had rejected God, that is precisely what he saw. That's what I see as I look around to my non-Christian friends and those people I know. And so let me say to you this evening, if you are a Christian... And if recently you've been thinking about hopping the fence, would you please take a look over the fence before you go to see if the grass is greener? Because in actual fact, David says, it's not better, it's worse. The reality is that you cannot desert the source of all happiness and expect to be happy. And on the other side, of course, Christians should be the most delighting people on earth. A convert of the great 18th century evangelist, George Whitfield, explained how they became, a, they became a Christian. Mr. Whitfield was so cheerful that it tempted me to become a Christian. Isn't that how it should be? Fourthly, we take refuge in God also as we catalogue God's provision. 
That's verse 5. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure, and the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. This is another way that David is resting in God by considering the temporal and particularly physical blessings which God has given to him. First his food and drink, the portion and the cup. And moreover, and more comprehensively, he sees his whole lot, which God has made secure. It's a reference to when Israel first entered the promised land. You remember when God divided the, the land between the twelve tribes. And then within that division, each family would have their share, their lot. It's really speaking about everything that David possessed. I suppose if he was speaking in 2006, he'd be thanking God for his house and his car and his job, if he had one. And his bank balance, however good or bad it looked. See, this is a reminder to us that everything comes from the Lord. And it's hard to appreciate it, isn't it? In our wealthy culture. I know that I'm so liable to sometimes think that I somehow provide for my own needs. That it just happens. And David is under no such illusions. Even as a king with so much, he recognizes God's hand. And therefore, maybe we should extend what we do so often at the mealtime table. You know, when we just give thanks for the food. And find other places to give thanks for everything that we own. It's not just the food on the table. It's the house that we're sitting Eating the meal in. God provides all that we have. And again, a little book that you could follow this up by reading. A fantastic book by a Puritan, John Flavel. He wrote a a title called The Mystery of Providence some years ago. And in the book, it's just an exploration of all the providences and the provisions of God in everything that we have. He says in the book that one of the reasons for want of joy and assurance in our lives as Christians is that we don't meditate on God's provision. And then a fifth thing, we take refuge in God as we covet God's presence. As David puts it in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. And in case you think David is not really serious about this, He adds in verse 7 that he seeks the Lord even at night. Day and night, David is seeking God. Of course, in the Bible, sleep is usually a mark of submission to God, of our faith and our trust in the Lord. And yet there are times when, not out of our anxiety, but out of our longing to commune with the Lord, we might forgo sleep. It may be that such is the busyness of our day at a particular time that we're left with little other time to get alone with the Lord. Hudson Taylor, one of the first missionaries to China, had an enormously busy schedule. And he didn't have much time during his day to read the Bible and pray. But he also had a passion to meet with God. One biographer recounts that after sleep had brought a measure of quiet, they would hear a match struck and see the flicker of a candlelight, which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible always in his hand. From 2 to 4, that's from 2 to 4 in the morning, a.m., was the time he usually gave to prayer, the time he could be most sure 
of being undisturbed to wait upon the Lord. Now, of course, the lesson is not that devotion in the early hours or the late hours is particularly significant. The importance is that we give priority to setting time aside to being with the Lord, to really pursuing the Lord's presence. Because as we do this, we receive the same blessings that David experienced. We're counseled by the Lord, verse 7. We're instructed by the Lord. And therefore, verse 8, we gain assurance that the Lord is at our right hand. He's right beside us. He's our security. And friends, without spending significant time with the Lord, it's not being legalistic about it and saying there's a certain time you need to fashion out, but without significant time, assurance in our salvation will not be possible. It won't come easy. And so I simply ask you, how serious are you about spending time in the presence of the Lord in a focused way? You know, we usually schedule in time with our spouses and our children, don't we? And we carve time to study and we take time to to work and for sports and that sort of thing. But is the Lord on our schedule? Do we covet the Lord's presence? Sixthly, we take refuge in God also as we celebrate God's preserving. See, all these earthly helps which David describes are now taken to a new level. Because David says that his protection extends even beyond death itself. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. This shows that David is not only thinking of his lifetime security in this psalm. He knows that even if his very life is taken from him, God will keep him secure. And though perhaps he didn't fully understand it at this point, he knows that somehow God will preserve his life. And he has this incredible bit of prophecy in verse 10. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You notice that the NIV capitalizes Holy One. It's not in the original, but the reason is that they recognize in the New Testament, both Peter and Paul take up this verse and apply it directly to Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, Peter proclaimed to the Jews that God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, for it was impossible for death to hold him. And then Peter quotes these verses, Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. And then he adds the further explanation, that seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. See, what gave David hope beyond his own death was the death of another whose body would not see decay. We can only speculate whether David had any idea that the resurrection was involved in this. But here's the point. Even hundreds of years before Christ, the resurrection of Jesus was David's security of life beyond death. Isn't that marvelous? Because, you know, it's not uncommon, even for Christians, to have fears and doubts about death from time to time. A Christian who never has any doubt or fear is probably already in heaven, aren't they? 
So what do we do when that doubt comes, that fear comes? Well, here's what I do. The first thing to do is to study the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. You don't look to your own death first. You consider Jesus' death and resurrection. And as you afresh see the compelling evidence that Jesus must have been raised from the dead, something logically follows, doesn't it? Because we know the truth that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has been raised, then we also shall be raised with him. If we have trusted in him for forgiveness, if we have been buried with him in death, then one day when he comes, we too will burst forth from the tomb. And so even looking ahead, even to the prospect of our own death, we can still rejoice and have security. Don't get me wrong, death is still an enemy. We read in the Bible that it will be the last enemy to be defeated. But we can still rejoice. You know, one of my uh, uncles, he's a Christian, and uh, over many years now, he's spoken quite often about his own funeral. You know, one of these sorts of people, they're telling you about all the hymns that they want to be sung and and, uh, the kind of way you've got to behave when you're at their funeral, smiling and so on and celebrating. Wonderful, though, when we have that kind of confidence, even as we look forward to our own death, that we will be secure. Seventhly and finally, David ends on a sweet note. He adds that we take refuge in God also as we crave God's pleasures. It really flows out from the sixth truth. The prospect of our resurrection is not an end in itself. Precisely because eternal joy in God's presence lies beyond our resurrection. Verse 11, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Maybe there's something you're looking forward to. I don't know if you've got your holidays booked already. Perhaps you're flying out somewhere June, July, August. You just can't wait. The anticipation is intense. You can almost taste the fun and the relaxation. And it seems to me that's precisely what David is like. About meeting with God. About going to heaven forever. And the refugee of verse 1 by verse 11 recognizes that he is also an heir. And that one day he will gain his inheritance, which is beyond imagining. It was C.S. Lewis who once said that joy is the serious business of heaven. And you know, this future reality should flood into our present. And it should qualify our ups and our downs. Our good times and our bad times when the road is rough. On the one hand, when the comforts and pleasures of this life are just great and things are going fantastic. We need to be reminded that these are just temporal joys. And they are nothing like what is to come. The best is to come. And also, when our lives seem devoid of pleasure, when everything seems to be a bit dark and dismal, if we're being honest, here is a shaft of light through which we see the glory of heaven and we rejoice in it. Again, a wonderful book to reflect on this is by Richard Baxter 
the saints everlasting rest, where he, he ponders chapter by chapter the joy, the pleasures that lie before us in the presence of God. So seven things, very practical. Active ways to take refuge in the Lord. We shouldn't be passive about this. We sometimes think that assurance is something that will just happen to us. We cry for the king's preserving, but we also flee into his fortress of protection each day, each life stage, each year that passes. But let me finish with this. Suppose you do all this. Suppose you pray to God and you say, Lord, Give me a security and assurance. Suppose you recognize that in the ultimate sense, it is God's spirit who testifies with your spirit that you're a child of God. And you pray, Lord, confirm to me. Suppose as best you can, you apply all these means of taking refuge in the Lord. And still, no security comes, no assurance. So what could the problem be? Let me suggest three possibilities. These are not exhaustive. But they're probably the main candidates. First of all, the salvation of the sinner. See, it might be that you have no assurance because you have never taken refuge in God. Period. And the way you do that in the first instance is you come to the death of Jesus at the cross, the resurrection, and you recognize that the price he paid was for you, for your sins, for your rebellion against God by turning to him from your rebellion by trusting in God and his son then and only then can you have the possibility of assurance your sins are forgiven the debt is cancelled the spirit comes to indwell you and there you have the joy within maybe though you're a Christian and so that doesn't work for you well what about this sin the sin of the saint the sin of the saint See, Scripture is also clear that by persistent and unconfessed sins in our life, we can grieve the Spirit of God. It doesn't affect our ultimate security, but it may affect our sense of that. And there may be times, even as a child of God, that we're being a bit rebellious, like, you know, teenage sons and daughters with their parents. And that can lead to a lack of assurance, a sense of disapproval before the Lord. Rodney was touching a bit on this this morning with David. Our need to come in repentance, to confess our sins before the Lord. Not to try and hide it away, but to bring it to our Father. And maybe tonight that's the challenge for you. You know there is some cherished sin that you need to bring before the Lord. The sin of the saint. Let me suggest a third possibility. The sovereignty of the Lord. See, this is the the X factor, if you like. On this side of heaven, we have to depend on God at all times, whether we feel his presence or not. Even David, as you look through other Psalms, you hear him confessing that he doesn't always have a palpable, overflowing sense of assurance. I was reading the other day in one of the Psalms, he said, Lord, you've hidden your face from me. And at those times, we simply need to trust the Lord. Billy Graham, the great evangelist, once wrote to his mother while studying in college. He said, Mother, I know I've been converted, 
I know I've trusted in Christ, but I just don't have any feeling. She wrote back, son, the Lord is testing you. He doesn't want you to walk by feeling, but by faith. He's waiting to see if you will trust in him. And you know, the Lord is waiting tonight to see if you and I will trust in him. Whether we will take refuge in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that a psalm written by just an individual thousands of years ago can be taken up by your spirit and applied to each and every person here. We recognize that your word is like a sword, that it penetrates and that sometimes it's uncomfortable. And Lord, some here tonight maybe have been challenged by your word because of sin that's unconfessed because of salvation that has not yet come to them Lord would you help us respond to you help us to see that you are merciful and gracious and that you long for us to run to you for protection and Lord for some of us we are needing your encouragement tonight we need your comfort we need a sense of your presence with us And so we pray for that. Help us, Lord, to respond now in this final song as we meditate on the words. May it be a prayer to you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.